Hi, and welcome to Make It Make Sense with Sareka Thanendra Dharaman, a podcast that aims to demystify the less than transparent publishing industry by talking to authors from historically underrepresented backgrounds. I believe that the more we make sense of how things work on the inside, the less we feel as though we're on the outside. Because learning from other authors, editors and agents that have made sense of their journeys should hopefully inspire many more to embark on their very own. Each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee the things they've made sense of in their careers, as well as anything they'd like to make sense of for fellow writers. I'm so happy to introduce our guest today, Chloe Timms, a novelist, writer and disability rights campaigner from the Kent Coast. She debuted her novel, The Sea Women, this year in June 2020. It's 2022. I don't wish to go back to June 2020, but she debuted in June 2022. She also hosts a podcast, Confessions of a Debut Novelist, and runs a Zoom writing club on Thursdays to help other writers come together and write. Chloe is so refreshing to speak to. She's honest and genuine about her journey, fueled by feelings of imposter syndrome. If I was a much better host, I would have at the time encouraged Chloe more than I did, as I think she's worked hard to be where she is. And imposter syndrome even though it can be common for a lot of us. Um, I read a great article in the Harvard Business Review titled Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. I'll link it in the show notes. In the article, it states, imposter syndrome is especially prevalent in biased, toxic cultures that value individualism and overwork. And sometimes we think we need to fix the narrative we're telling ourselves. But maybe it's also about fixing the structures around us that lead identities that have been marginalised and discriminated against to feel this way. We also speak about toxic positivity, letting go of the things you can't control, disability representation in adult fiction, and the mixed emotions one can feel throughout the submission process, even once you hear you're being published. Hi, Chloe, and welcome to Make It Make Sense. Hi, Sareka. So happy to be here. Um, I've uh, wanted to have you on actually since I started Make It Make Sense because you yourself are also a podcast host and you also started a podcast maybe just before Make It Make Sense had begun. Um, so I'm really excited because you have also published your debut novel in June of this year, if I'm not mistaken, in the UK. And you're also a disability rights campaigner. So there's lots for us to get into. But first and foremost, what I always ask my guests is, what did you want to be when you were younger? Well, that's a hard question because I feel like what I wanted to be and what my parents wanted me to be were very separate. And then I kind of ended up somewhere in between um, because I don't, I mean, I've always loved writing and I've always written. And I mean, I've said, I've said in so many interviews and it's totally true that I used to fold bits of paper in half and make my own books. I used to draw the front cover and I would always, I would always be writing, but it never felt like that was a possible career. You know, it never felt like that was, available and, and and when you're when you're thinking about careers how do you even become a writer how is that a thing I mean I still think today it, it's such a a weird industry to get into because there's so many roots into it so 
I can honestly say that even now I don't know what I want to be or what I what my dream career is and I've ended up doing a lot of different things um I did psychology at university I then went on and became a primary school teacher my parents mainly my mum wanted me to be a speech and language therapist because she always thought that it was good for someone with a disability to have a job that's in high demand um mm. but I was never interested in doing that so that that was never going to happen um but yeah I, I I guess I kind of wanted to be I wanted to be a pop star when I was a child I wanted to be Jerry Halliwell mainly but um I can't sing so that was a big big end to that career so yeah I've, I've kind of wanted to be lots of different things um which is probably why I've never had like one solid career I suppose and I've always done lots of different things how did you then land into a career or uh start writing if you were doing that from so young what was it that kind of shifted that from just um something you're doing as a hobby into what could become a career yeah so I've as I said I've, I've written since I was a child I wrote I, I did NaNoWriMo when I was doing my teacher training which is probably the worst possible time to do NaNoWriMo um but then I taught for three years and then my contract ended and I was at a, a bit of a crossroads really and didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life and so I thought, well, why don't I, I think deep down, I probably always wanted to do like creative writing at university, but thought I need a job. And so I didn't do that at university for my undergrad. And then once I'd worked for a couple of years, I thought I, I really fancy going back to university and doing a master's in creative writing and finding out whether I was actually any good. I kind of wanted that validation really. So I'd done a, I did a couple of courses first and then I applied for the master's and got in. And so I went, um, to Kent University and did um, a year-long master's in creative writing which I loved and I loved being in that environment with people who are so passionate about writing and take it so seriously and I love I love learning like even now I'm doing I'm doing a course at the moment on writing historical fiction and I just I'm such a big nerd I love <laughs> sitting in a room with people or doing it virtually and and talking about writing and craft and so once I've done the um, master's at Kent I kind of then took myself a little bit more seriously as a writer and thought okay well I really need to start applying to competitions and applying for um, various schemes or entering my writing into lit magazines and stuff and I applied for the first ever Penguin Right Now competition which was a sort of selection process to mentor people and I got down to I guess it was like the final 12 or 15 or something didn't get any further but that was a big indication to me that I was good at writing and that maybe I should carry on. Um, mm. And then I applied to the Faber Academy first ever scholarship. And I'd always, I'd kind of looked at the Faber Academy from afar very lustfully because I'd always wanted to join Faber because it was such a amazing, a course with an amazing reputation. I'd always wanted to join Faber, but the course was pretty expensive and it was a six months course. And I noticed they were doing a scholarship and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to apply probably no chance but I'm going to give it a go um I applied and I know it's kind of cliche to say but I really genuinely forgot I'd applied and then I got a phone call in January of 2018 to say you've won you're on the course it starts next week we'll see you in London and I was like oh okay great now I have to I mean I don't live too far from London I live about an hour and a half away but hmm. um, it was kind of commuting every every Tuesday night and uh one Saturday a month but Faber completely changed my life and I had such an amazing time there 
met incredible friends who I'm still in touch with now and who've been there through my whole publishing process and writing journey. And that really introduced me to the publishing industry, I suppose, how to get an agent, how to write a submission letter. And it also led to me getting my agent as well. So it was just a absolutely incredible experience. And I think if it, if it wasn't for Faber, I'm not sure that I would be published today. And I really feel so grateful for that, for that course and for that whole environment. Really. I loved it. That's, I mean, to, to go back a few steps as well with your masters and your creative writing masters, I, I know you've just said that Faber helped a lot and um, that's what led you to your agent and the following steps as well. But with your creative masters, did that also feel like at that time after you'd finished, did that help you? Is that why you knew to um, submit to writing competitions and to lit mags? What was the difference in those two kind of setups? Because I know writers come from, you know, having done a master's, but also having done none of that, having yeah. not done a favor course. What do you think um, was the difference and what was it that came out of both of those that you really appreciate now looking back? I think a lot of it is confidence building, validation. And I certainly don't think they're necessary things to do. I mean, obviously, they're for a lot of people, they're hugely out of their price range. But for me, it was being in an environment with people who love writing and are really passionate about it and really committed to making their work better and their craft better. And and also, I think you learn so much from workshopping other people's work. And that's one aspect that I really, really enjoy. And I find that sometimes I, I look at someone's work and I see something that they've done and I think, oh, I do that as well. <laughs> that's not a good thing. <laughs> um, but it makes you better because you're, you're then... I don't know, I was saying, one of my friends that I did the favour course with, I said to her, the thing with the the workshopping, and that's the same when I did my master's, is that every time we had to submit any work, I would be like, I'm going to make this bit of work so good that no one is going to have anything <laughs> negative to say. Okay. Yeah, which is obviously not the point of the workshop. <laughs> no. But, you know, I, I, and it, but it does force you to be really kind of self-critical, but in a in a good way, because you're you're trying to see your work through other people's eyes. And I always think, even when I've had my work looked at by my editor, there's bits in it that I think, oh, I'm going to kind of bodge this bit and hope they don't notice. And they always, without fail, <laughs> notice that bit. And they're like, mm, a bit of an issue with this part. And I'm like, damn, they noticed. Um, but no, I mean, the Masters, I think, for me, was almost proving to myself that I could actually write. Because, I mean, at school, I've been told I could write. And I loved it, obviously. I, I wanted that I wanted to know I wanted to study it in an academic setting so that I knew I had some bases I mean I I kind of feel a little bit inadequate I guess because I, I never studied English literature at university and I loved it at, at school and things but I feel like there's a gap in my sort of understanding of literature and themes and genre and stuff and so I felt like just for me I need to do this course to to give myself some basis to work on and I certainly don't think it's necessary and I've met people that have not done a single course and they're amazing but mm -hmm. I felt like for me it was I think I thrive in that kind of creative environment as well and it certainly motivates me to a be a better writer and also just to keep writing I think it's very hard when you're not published or you've not got an agent to keep going and to feel mm -hmm. like that is a possibility because it's hard I mean agents get like thousands of submissions and they pick maybe 
eight clients a year. And you think when you hear those sort of statistics, I can fully understand people giving up because you feel like you're fighting a losing battle. But I think that's what the the masters gave me this impetus to carry on and to think, no, I've got to I've got to do something with this. Especially also it's expensive. You want to make sure your money's worth it. You know, you want to do something at the end of it and, and not think, well, that was just uh, a degree I did for fun. It's got to be it's going to be worth it in the end. And and I think um, there's an element of it being worth it just for your own learning, but also hopefully kind of career progression as well. Hmm. And so your debut novel, The Sea Women, was parts of that written within any of those courses, whether it was a creative masters or the Faber? Yeah, so a bit of both, really. So I kind of started it at, at doing my master's in Kent, um, but it was a very different novel and it was told from a different perspective. But the seed of the idea was the same. Um, in my head, it's the same story, but it was kind of different as I wrote it. And then I'd worked on it at, during my master's and I think I'd written about, let's say, 60,000 words, something like that. And then I got to a point and I just thought, something about it that isn't working and so off my own back I decided to almost scrap it and start again it wasn't a case of getting rid of it or deleting it I've still got it somewhere on my computer but it was just a case of a need to look at this story from a different perspective and tell it from a different character's point of view which I just started kind of planning and and making my uh making a like a plan of how I was going to move forward with this and then I got the call to say uh, Faber wants you and uh, that was very exciting and then when I was at Faber I, I was starting on this brand new version of the manuscript and again it changed so much when I, I think I wrote I wrote a lot at Faber and then I had this new idea for an opening chapter which then changed everything again mm-hmm. and I think like every every novel does it evolved so much mm-hmm. but yeah the the early kind of seeds of it happened on both courses and I think again without that kind of encouragement that I was writing something worthwhile I think it would have been I think it's hard for writers myself included to know what you're doing has potential you can only judge it and think it's like I'm writing a new book at the moment and I think it's good but no one's given me the thumbs up yet so it's hard to know yeah but I also think if you're I mean just to give us more context a sea woman set in a fictional island named Eden Island and it's uh, inhabited by a religious cult um, and it's your novel's been described as atmospheric dystopian fiction that depicts what corruption and control from a misogynistic cult has over its island I mean it's not an easy or <laughs> mild themes that you've chosen so what what was it that the seed that you had what was it that was there from the start and that made you feel like you could keep writing in order for this to be a full story because I think that's part of it is that you yourself feel like it's a story you would read or a story you want to continue writing what was it that brought this all together for you so it was two things really and I think at first I wasn't entirely sure whether I could mix the two together but then that was part of the fun I suppose of experimenting so initially the the novel began actually as a poem and I was writing about a a doomed tragic love story between a woman on the edge of a coastline who was a fisherman's wife falling in love with a merman essentially a man that appeared from the water that she could never get to because she couldn't swim um and this poem my dear had stayed with me for years I mean I wrote the poem in 2014 so we're talking a, a, nearly a decade. <laughs> um, 
And then I kind of played with the short story, but it was a lot more dystopian because I kept thinking, well, what would what would stop a woman swimming? If she lives on an island, what is the thing that would stop her swimming? Um, and I could only, I mean, I loved The Handmaid's Tale and stories of like dystopian stories like that. That So I was kind of naturally drawn towards that side of it. So I started writing a short story and then this was during my master's and I remember one of my tutors saying to me, mm, this is not a short story, <laughs> this is a novel and you've got you've to gotta do it. And I was like, but a novel is so much hard work. <laughs> It's a so hundred words. words. Yeah, exactly. I just thought, no, I can't do it. But <laughs> I really, really was invested in this idea and I could see the island, I could taste the island. You know, it was so vivid in my mind and I just wanted to explore this kind of slightly fantastical world, but also make it dystopian, kind of keep it quite grounded. And yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I cite The Handmaid's Tale and then feel like that book, and and obviously the TV show has become a little bit cliche because everyone knows about it. Everyone cites it when we're talking about women's bodies and uh, body autonomy. But it was such an inspirational book to me growing up because I read it at school, I studied it, and I'd never read anything like it in my life. And I just, I my mind was blown by what this book did and what it could do. And it's such a short book as well. And it does so much world building. And so that was a huge inspiration for me particularly when I was kind of trying to work out what my themes were, I suppose. And they were something that, I mean, I didn't set out to, like you say, the kind of deep and dark themes that I explored. That was never there from day one. It was just as I wrote, these kind of things crept in. And, you know, I think you naturally absorb news that you're consuming as you write. And there was a lot of things going on um, in Poland. And there was uh, obviously in the States and things like that. And and whether I was conscious of it or not, I mean, I even think bits of Brexit dripped into my work somehow, you know, so um, it wasn't even necessarily intentional. It just, I think you naturally gravitate towards topics that are happening in your life, whether you are aware of it or not. So I think I, w- I was very, and I've always been interested in kind of cult mentality and and, and the the kind of control aspect of it. Um, I mean, I've, I I will watch any Netflix documentary on cults that's going. You know? So uh, yeah, that was that was the kind of interesting part of doing the research and reading a lot of memoirs of people who've escaped um, religious sects and things like that. Mm. Because I just find the whole psycho. I guess I mean I studied psychology at university, but I guess it goes back to like the psychology of that environment. I just find so interesting, and so I think I guess when you write a lot of your obsessions and interests and fears and worries all mixed together and and Mm. usually end up in your debut novel so there we go (laughs) (laughs) there is yeah I was actually gonna I'm always a bit wary about asking that question especially to female authors because it's always um projected onto writers especially female writers but um it is true and when there's so much happening around you as you said Brexit and you know the world we're living in at the moment it'd be hard not to write some of that (laughs) Um, doom within it and you see that darkness and that kind of um, dystopian world and I think in a way as you keep citing Handmaid's Tale that's not a that's in no way negative when it comes to publishing and comping your book and finding agents can you tell us now a little about 
when you'd written the book and when you came across your agent, I know it was from Faber, but how much of your novel had been written when you came to your agent and then how that followed through to publishing? Yeah, sure. So at the end of the Faber course, our our work was compiled in, in an anthology and I think it was our first chapter or about 2,000 words, 3,000 words. And the anthologies were sent out to a lot of agents, um, mainly in London. And there was also like an agent's day where they could come and listen to us read. Um, and the day the anthology, and the anthology went out, I had an email from Nell Andrew, who I know you know, because you've had her on the podcast. Um, and I was very ignorant and I had no idea who she was. Uh, and um, I mean, at that point, I was so early in the... I, I mean, I knew I wanted an agent, I knew I wanted to get published, but I didn't really know who, I knew a couple of agents, but I didn't really know who anyone was or um, anything like that. And so I had this email from her and um, saying that she had received the anthology and gone straight to the back of the book, because in her opinion, everyone else would start the front. So she wanted to start at the back and mm-hmm. find her gold dust at the back. Um, and as I'm a T, I was thinking, third to the end or something um and she said how much she loved it and she wanted to speak to me on the phone so I had a I had a couple of other offers well not offers but a couple of interested emails and um I spoke to Nell and we spoke on the phone and I just knew that she got it straight away and she totally understood me and she understood the book and she had total faith in that there was nothing I was doing that was kind of like gratuitous in terms of violence or or I mean we talked a lot about Handmaid's Tale obviously and, and things like that um but it was left very open and she just I just said to her look I'm not done I think I'd written I guess about 40,000 words at that point and I said to her I'm not finished and I felt like I didn't want to promise her an amazing manuscript when I knew I hadn't finished one so I was very reticent to go any further <laughs> and it's funny because recently I've heard this story from her point of view and it's very weird because from my point of view I was like no I'm not ready I can't give her the work and from her mm-hmm. point of view she was like why won't she just sign the contract <laughs> <laughs> but I I was very much like don't want to let her down don't want to be a disappointment uh-huh. so that was September 2018 and she kept in touch with me and kept emailing me going how's it going like there's no pressure but you know if you wanted to chat and I kept going I'm not done yet um and then in March 2019 I had dinner with some of my favorite friends and they were like for god's sake what are you (laughs) doing doing? why haven't you emailed her some more work or why haven't you and I just said I'm not ready I'm not I'm not it's not good enough I don't want to disappoint her yeah after that conversation I emailed her and I just said um you know would you like to read five chapters um thinking what if she reads these five chapters and she's like nope <laughs> um so I, I got brave and I emailed her these five chapters and Nell was at London Book Fair at the time and she said it was Tuesday and should I get back to you by Friday well she got back to me by Wednesday and wow. she was like I love it we need a meeting <laughs> so we had a meeting and then finally I signed with her and she is now my agent but from my point of view I was like no not ready not good enough and from her point of view, I think she was worried that I was going to run off with someone else. That was never happening in my mind. Like, I always wanted Nell. But I was so... And I still am now. I mean, when 
when we submitted the sea women to editors i was like are, are you sure are you sure it's ready like are, are you definitely sure like can't i work on it for another six months <laughs> to make sure it's totally perfect but i think that i think that's the same for every writer i think I, I haven't read my book now as it stands on my shelf because I'm worried that I'm I'm still going to want to change things. Yeah, I think it's that artist thing of, you know, forever tweaking and not being yeah. ever 100% think you don't ever feel like it's totally ready. Um, but I mean, I, I have total faith in now. She's she's an amazing woman, an amazing agent. And I know she wouldn't let anything go out under her name unless she was 100% happy. But I'm just... Um, I said to you before we started recording, I'm a control freak, so I think that's why. <laughs> that's amazing. I'm curious to know if other agents have had to follow up with writers as much as Nell had to follow yeah, up. Oh God, yeah, I, I do. I mean, it's so funny. She told the story at my book launch and I was just laughing because it felt like a completely different world to the one I'd lived through. I was like, I didn't realise she was <laughs> desperate to sign me. I thought I was like, I, I was just under the impression that I, I just wasn't there and I don't know I don't know why it's I think agent and author relationships are quite odd because obviously they work for you but a lot of the times you do feel like you work for them um and not necessarily in a negative way it's just sometimes because I think someone like Nell's got such an amazing career and she's had such an incredible um like publishing journey and she's published some incredible people and I think I still feel a bit like she knows so much and I'm still so new. And I think sometimes that's quite a difficult relationship to navigate because at the end of the day, the the, the buck stops with me. If I don't want to do something or if I do want to do something, it is my say at the end of the day. But I'm always sending her emails going, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> but it's also amazing from a writer's perspective because I guess, I don't know, maybe you felt differently, but one of the first hurdles in terms of being published is to find your agent. So if there's an agent contacting you, genuinely interested, it's amazing that you didn't just sign and you felt that you weren't ready. Yeah. What was, do you remember what your kind of aim at that time? What was it that you wanted to get it to a point of perfection that you could, I know you said you always wanted to, to have Nell as your agent, but was there also a point where you thought, no, I'll do an actual query process? And um, out. yeah I mean I, I'm so I feel so thankful that I didn't have to go down the querying route I mean obviously that's so hard and I uh I really admire people that particularly that have you know queried 70 people and got 69 rejections I mean mm. that's, that's a massive achievement but um and I always feel a bit like a fraud in a way because I feel like I didn't do that um but incredibly fortunate but I, I don't know I think in my head I just thought a, I mean, I, a, I was naive. I didn't know how amazing Nell was, and I think, I think it was more that, and I think it still probably is that imposter syndrome feeling of how can she possibly want me because she only read two thousand words. Like that two thousand words was good because it pretty much hasn't changed and it's still mm -hmm. in my book. Mm -hmm. So that maybe that was a fluke. I think that was what I was feeling, and and I think, I mean, she said herself, like when she received that five thousand uh, five chapters she was worried that it wouldn't live up to that first chapter and I think it was both our fear and thank god it did live up to it but it was I think it was just more me not having faith in myself and thinking well she doesn't really want me she's just saying that you know but I mean that's a crazy opinion to have because 
why would she waste her time on me if she didn't actually see the potential? And I think she is very good at, and now I've spoken to some of her other authors who, um, I mean, Lizzie Damelo, the Blackburn, who you've had on your podcast as well. And I know she said that her first draft of Yinka was was rough. And Nell was like, I don't care. I see that. I see that potential. Um, I mean, I do feel sorry for Nell because at one point I went a bit mad and wrote 1,750,000 words. It was 175,000 words I wrote um, in lockdown because I panicked. (laughs) Again, it was the panicking that I didn't know what I was doing. And I thought if I write all these words, some of them will be good. Was that 175,000 words of the sea women? Yeah. And you gave that to Nell to read. I mean, Nell came back to me and said, I've cut 72,000 words. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I do. Wow. Poor woman had to to cope with that in during lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> but that's amazing. She read it. And yeah, I mean, it. she she cut a whole character. Yeah, cut a whole subplot. You know, but um, it it. I mean, it needed it. I I didn't feel I didn't feel sad about that at all. I was just so relieved that she actually thought it worked. I think that was because it was the first draft I'd done after her input. And I think I was very much feeling like I've got to, I've got to make it work because if I don't make it work, I think I always live in fear. And again, it's a completely irrational fear that she'll go, oh, I don't want to be your agent anymore. And I, and I, I think, I, I, I think it's, I think everyone experiences imposter syndrome. And I don't think I'm alone in this. Um, but I think it's always that. I think particularly because she found me. And I didn't query. I almost feel like that's more a more risky thing. I don't know. That maybe is completely irrational. And I should be thinking, she chose you. What are you talking about? So I don't know. It's just my it's just when I when I get into my imposter syndrome head, yeah. I, I start to doubt myself. But that's that's been I don't know whether that will ever change. I've I've heard kind of even people who are, you know, huge writers that have this amazing career and they still feel imposter syndrome. Yeah, but I mean, that is the way to look at it, isn't it? That Nell chose you based on those 2,000 words. And that's, you know, 2,000 words is is not an entire book, but it's a very good um, outline of your writing and um, the potential that she saw in your writing. So, um, yeah, I know how imposter syndrome can take over our thoughts completely, but... Uh, I don't think Nell's going anywhere knowing Nell and how she committed she is and she read you 175,000 words um so from that process what then was the next step with uh, Nell once you started to whittle down and to come up with however many drafts before you went to editors so I think from that awful amount of words that I wrote um then that obviously was trimmed down. I think we possibly did two other drafts after that. And then it was just fine tuning really. And then mm-hmm. we divided, it was Nels I did to divide the book into sections. So there's um, girl, wife and mother, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, what about including like a little bit of scripture because the book is so mm-hmm. based in this kind of religious cult and in fact, I really enjoyed writing this kind of imag- like made up um, Bible or whatever you want to call it. Um, that was really fun, even though it took me hours to write kind of like three sentences, but it was great. Um, and then we went on submission in 
I think it was either August or September of 2020. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it was like the worst time of my life. <laughs> Just, you know, refreshing emails and yeah. waiting and thinking, is the phone going to ring? Is, like, is there going to be a magic email pop into my box? And I remember, because Nell was very much like, would approach it saying, how much do you want to know? Do you want to hear the no's and do you want to hear the why and I said I don't really want to hear if it's a no I don't want to hear why because actually I don't know how helpful that would be Mm -hmm. um but you know I'm happy to hear positives but kind of keep me updated with what happened and initially there was loads of great comments and feedback and then there was a lot of rejection and it got to I think I can't remember when it was I remember I went out for lunch and then I had I checked my email and had more no's it's very hard to talk about because it was a, such a difficult time because I mm. basically had a conversation with Nell where she said she thought it was the end of the road for the book and it she didn't think it was going to sell and she wasn't going to give up but she felt it was pretty unlikely and I think I cried for about two weeks on and off mm. And it was just, I honestly thought it was like the end, full stop, mm-hmm. because I couldn't imagine writing another book. And it just felt so far away because that book had taken me so many years to write. And then after about two weeks, it was October, I sort of just about pulled myself together again. And I went on this like long walk in the woods and had this sort of put together a little plan in my mind. So I'd signed up for all these kind of courses to kickstart my kind of creative energy again and try and come up with something and then Mm. I came home and I had an email from Nell to say we've had an offer oh wow I was like what (laughs) but it was over I thought my life was over and and then we'd had this offer and it turns out that um someone from the agency had gone out for lunch with a new editor um at a new imprint and they had loved the sound of my book and this has all gone on without me knowing this was happening. Yeah. Making it to acquisitions and, and everyone was behind it and we had an offer. And and it was mm-hmm. I think it was for months really hard to believe that mm. after thinking it was over, <laughs> completely dead in the water, that was actually going to be published. And I remember having a real mix of emotions at the time because I felt like I should be overjoyed, but I had so much baggage of rejection and disappointment and misery and I remember saying to one of my friends that like I don't really feel that happy or excited because I still am in that phase of rejection and it was very hard at the beginning to enjoy it and celebrate and particularly as well because obviously the pandemic was incredibly difficult period and mentally and emotionally I think we were all strung out and I'd been shielding for months and months and and really found that a big mental toll. And, and you know, when you're in lockdown and you can't celebrate with anyone, it doesn't even, it feels even less real. Um, so, yeah, it was a weird, weird time. I mean, obviously, I was absolutely deep down. I was absolutely thrilled. It just didn't mm. sink in for quite a long time. And, mm. and then when I started to work on the book and I started to get, um, you know, editorial notes and I, I had uh, drafts of the front cover and then... I mean, I'm now I'm I'm absolutely thrilled and I'm loving every minute. But it took a long time to get to that point because of the the kind of 
the the submission process was just awful <laughs> and I I very yeah. and I know it, it can go so many ways for so many different people and um it just I I hope that it's prepared me for next time but I don't know I mean it is interesting because like you say that many authors and many writers come to agents in different ways and come to um, writing their stories in different ways the same can be said of being published because mm. you can go out on submission to so many editors but it might just not be the right editor but you can't submit again to that house so that kind you have this one shot almost and if that's gone then you almost feel like there's nothing else to do to then have you know someone come back and say I'm really interested it's a complete 360 that you had no idea was even an option for you really. yeah and I can imagine that that takes a lot of getting used to but as in every process I think sometimes we forget how hard or how long the story is for a book to have been published. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if I think of the people that I've spoken to on this podcast, I don't think any of them so far has been their actual first novel that's been written, that's been published. So um, The Sea Women is the first novel that you went out with and it it's your debut novel and it was published. And from what I understand, that's quite a rare feat. And I think that's something to hold on to and to also remember everyone has these kind of uh, challenges and questions and this constant imposter syndrome everyone has it the thing about this industry and what I'm so what I'm so pleased about with your podcast is that it's such a strange industry in mm. that there is so much unsaid so much we don't know and often you hear the big successes when you hear about the book industry you hear about the novel that was in a 12-way auction. It's going to be adapted for TV. And it all feels like such a whirlwind of big numbers, big success, and it all happening in a very linear way. And I think that is not the case for probably 80% of people. And it's, I think it's hard to, there's so much comparison in the industry because at the end of the day, we're all doing the same job. We're all writing a book. But there's so many routes to do that and there's so many outcomes, there's so many versions of success that I think it then piles pressure on people to feel like, well, if I haven't got this, then I'm doing it wrong or I haven't been successful. And um, I think the reason why it makes the headlines when a book has won a 12-way auction is going to have a film made is because it's rare. It doesn't happen often. And but I think unfortunately that almost becomes the expectation. And I think that when you have a bit of a bumpy ride to be published, I think you then almost feel like, well, does that mean my book's not as good? But it can be about so many different things. It can be about the market and it can be about what's trendy. And it's like, you know, when Twilight came out and then there were hundreds of vampire books written, there came a point where the market was so saturated that suddenly vampires were not in fashion anymore and no one wanted a vampire book and yet now vampires are coming back in trend again so it's so much about timing and lots of weird things and and I mean we'll talk about it in a bit but there's so much about the industry you can't control when you have no say over and you just have to go it, it is what it is and I've written a book and that's all I can do mm. 
No, it's true. We will get into that in the three things that you wanted to make sense of. One thing I wanted to ask before we speak about that is, um, so you're a wheelchair user and you're a, a disability rights campaigner because a large part of this podcast is obviously speaking to authors who are historically underrepresented within publishing. How do you feel about disability representation in fiction um, and not that you have to have this answer, but thoughts on how publishing could do better? I think it's pretty terrible, if I'm honest. Um, I think children's and YA is a lot better than adult fiction, and I've certainly seen a lot more moves towards better representation in children's than adults. I think it's still seen as a very niche subject, even though about a fifth of the population is disabled which is utterly mad, really, when you think about it, because there's so much variety when we talk about disability as well. I think it's incredibly disappointing that there seems to be hardly any disability like representation in adult fiction. I think it's such a shame that we don't see more of it. Um, I think that the there are definitely efforts to, towards making it better, and I know I'm a member of a... Um, uh, Society of Authors group which is specifically for authors with disabilities and chronic illnesses and we're all working so hard behind the scenes to try and improve things whether it's coming up with um, initiatives um, awards, mentoring to try and improve access to the industry for one because I think the reason why we don't have good representation is because there aren't enough disabled authors in the industry in, in the first place mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot of difficulties because particularly if you're in a contract for books and you've got to write a book a year or a book every two years that's a lot of physical energy and effort and that just isn't possible if you've got a disability that affects your energy levels or your um, mobility or things like that there's also I mean one of the one of the positives of the pandemic was opening up events, meetings and everything to be an online thing mm -hmm. rather than being an in-person thing, which I know has been an amazing thing for many of us that have got a disability because no longer do we have to travel to a big city or use our energy to get there to be a part of the literary world. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, now that we are in this idea of a post-pandemic world, even though that's not the case, a lot of organisations have kind of given up on online events and online I mean a, a lot of my meetings are still online which I'm really grateful for but um certainly access is a is a huge issue in terms of getting people into the publishing industry mm -hmm. and I just think it's this really outdated view that no one is interested in stories of of like diversity and um stories where the main character is disabled but it's not a story of tragedy or mm. they're, they're choosing to end their life because I think so far that's been the most popular way of, of show, showcasing disability in, in novels. And um, that's incredibly depressing that, I mean, I, I grew up with, with no characters that I could mm. see in, in children's books that were anything like me or ha had my life at all. And I remember reading one book in my entire childhood um, and it was a it was actually not even fiction it was like a collection of non-fiction essays that people had written and it was mm -hmm. called me and my electric and it was about people that had disabilities and someone in an electric wheelchair and I remember being like 
it was like gold dust to have this book but yet it wasn't enough it wasn't the story mm. I mean I loved fiction I wanted a, mm. a novel about someone in a wheelchair and um I still do I mean I, I'd absolutely love to read novels with particularly for me because I selfishly would like to see someone in a wheelchair in, as the main character because I'd love to read like a rom-com or or something just mm. about life and not about disability but that just 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 isn't there and it just there's mm. not there's no I haven't seen any real efforts to even and I don't even know how open publishers are to it because I mean we've seen obviously some attempts to make uh, books more diverse in terms of um, race and gender and sexuality but in terms of disability I just haven't seen it so I don't know how open the industry is to it um, and it's certainly something that I want to explore in the future. And I felt like at the beginning of my career, I, I, I still waver over the idea of because I'm disabled, I have to write disabled characters or disabled stories. I don't think that should be the case. But also I want to see change. So I do want to be part of that change. But I think to write about disability, you need to be very comfortable in yourself. And and I'm on a journey of of kind of, self-acceptance and and getting rid of my own internalized ableism and so I think when I've reached a point where I feel like and I think I'm getting there because I'm I'm certainly exploring more options of of what I want to write and and uh what I'd like to see in future so yeah I, I do hope I see a change but it, it does worry me that someone has to be that pioneer and someone mm. has to be that person to lead the way we will see change even if it takes another 10 years, but I hope it's not that long. I wanted to ask how you feel about the process now on the other side of having your novel being published also just as an author that just debuted their novel but also someone who's now writing into their second novel how what's that headspace at the moment for you <laughs> um, panic wild <laughs> panic I wasn't expecting a wholly positive <laughs> well, have I given you the impression that I'm not a fully positive person I don't know where you got that from <laughs> um I really need to work on that, I don't know, my positive. No, no, it's, I mean, there's also a side of like keeling over into toxic positivity and it's, yeah, and the I really reality of it. And I, and I feel like that is, that is the problem to go off on another tangent, but I feel like that is the problem as well with um, being your own brand if you mm. are a writer, because you, I mean, yeah, occasionally you can have a moany tweet or you can have a tweet going, you know, this this sucks and it's not working or, um, I don't know, I didn't get the book deal or whatever it is. But people generally expect you to be talking about the good things that are going on in your life and the successes. And also, I mean, it does create a nicer picture of a person and they're not just <laughs> only miserable all the time. But I certainly feel like you are expected, not expected by your publishers, but just expected in general to present a a positive outlook on what's going on in your career in your life um and I think sometimes it can step into toxic positivity and then when people are looking at it thinking well I've I've you know I've got these rejections from agents and stuff and so I, I try to be as open as I can and I think 
there comes a point where you don't want to just paint this unrealistic, idealised view of how things are going. Obviously, you want to be professional, but it is hard sometimes. And that's why I think it's important to have people in your life as well that you can just use to moan and bitch and, and <laughs> say, this is a, a disaster or, you know, this is going badly or whatever you need to say to yeah. someone private and not do it on Twitter. Um <laughs> But yeah, can you repeat your question? Because I've forgotten what. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but I like this uh, train of conversation better. Um, I wanted to know which maybe uh, is a perfect lead in to your headspace at the moment being, because it is something to be um, celebrating that you debuted your novel, but also you are then stepping into your second novel. And a lot of authors have said that that's quite a hard space to work in. Um, because you've come from the process of working with editors and knowing a lot more of the industry than what you knew before you had published yeah. your debut novel. So how does it feel for you to ride in that space and to to be on? Because you only debuted in June, so it's not been yeah. that long either. Weirdly, I feel quite removed from my first mm. book now because mm. I, I'm so trying to throw myself into a new book. Um, I think it's helpful having that industry experience because I suppose it depends on how you look at writing if you are someone that's all about the art I suppose then maybe it wouldn't be helpful but I have now I feel like in a way I feel a bit more grounded because I know that actually your book ends up becoming a product and it becomes being okay how can we market this what are the comp titles where is this going to sit on a shelf mm -hmm. um all those kinds of things. What genre is this? And when I first write, write, started writing The Sea Wind, I didn't think about any of those things. <laughs> and whether you think that's a positive thing or not, it then can make it harder to pitch it. It can make it harder to say, mm. okay, well, what are the comp titles? How are we going to publicise this? How are we going to market this? And no, that isn't my job, but there's still those are still things that it's helpful for me to know. Because if you go to an event or you meet someone and they go, oh, hi, what's your book about? And you just go oh, well, it's kind of this book about this thing and I don't really know about this and it's sort of this genre, but it's a little bit of this genre, which I have done many times. That is not the best way to market yourself and to sell yourself. And a lot of the industry is about that catchy pitch or that brilliant hook. So that has been in my mind, but also it is about writing a book that you don't mind reading 700 times because I know I'll have to read it 700 times. Um, and it's also, there is an element I feel that you don't choose your book, good book chooses you. I am writing at the moment a book that has a couple of historical strands, which I did not plan to do. And I'm like, why did I decide to write historical fiction? That was never the plan, because that involves a lot of research and loads of work. Um, but I don't feel like I had a say in that. I feel like the book chose me in, in that weird way that those things happen. The three things you'd like to make sense of uh, for writers and or publishing hopefuls. The first one is uh, that you've written was being your own best advocate or making the most of every opportunity by acknowledging that you are a writer. Yeah, and you, and you might laugh at this now that you've heard me talk about imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah. That's good. It's, it's like, good to get both sides uh, of the coin. I, I, can, I can be a complete hypocrite and say, <laughs> Go out there and be confident and say, I'm a writer, even though inside you do not feel that way. Yeah. 
Um, but I also think a lot of it is fake it till you make it. And I have learned that actually saying to people, I'm an author, I'm a writer, impresses people in a in a strange way. And yes, they might say to you, when's the movie coming out or what are your sales figures, which yeah. is the question that I get most often. Um, your sales figures? Yes. People want to know how much money you've made is, the, is, is all they want to know. Like uh, non non publishing people ask yeah. that. What? Every pretty much everyone goes. Oh, and, and how's the book doing? And I'll go. Oh yeah, yeah, great. And then they go. Um, and how many have you sold? And I'm what? like, I have no idea. <laughs> That's a terrible follow up question. <laughs> but I think even if you don't feel confident, I think it's really useful to start taking your writing seriously and to, to to believe that this is your career and this is what you want to do and certainly i found that it's been helpful for me to speak to people even people like in bookshops and just say to them oh i'm a writer and then they're immediately like oh well we're doing an event would you like to come would you like to do this event for us and it's been amazing to just say I'm a writer and then you get so many more opportunities and maybe it's an event or maybe it's a someone want, maybe has a opportunity for you to do some uh, creative writing teaching or things like that and I just think well, some people are embarrassed about admitting to the fact they're a writer or they don't feel even though they've got a book in their hands that they've written they don't feel that that is worthy of telling people and I think that should be even if you've just started out and you've you know you just write for fun tell people you know be honest and say I'm a writer even if you've not got anything published you're still a writer Mm. do you find it easier to say that now yeah because there's hard evidence (laughs) well that's something (laughs) yeah (laughs) no I mean I I definitely feel like I can say it now because I can ask people, I can be that arrogant person and say, Google me, you know, but um, (laughs) no, I I think it helps in that I feel, I can see why people who don't have any work published that they might feel they're not able to say it because Mm. it's almost like publishing proof of success. Mm. But I think there are amazing people out there, amazing writers out there that have not managed to get their work published yet. who for whatever reason, whether it's barriers or whether it's lack of confidence or lack of opportunity, haven't made that um, move into being published. But I think I think the people are impressed by creativity and people who are willing to persevere and commit. So I think there are there will be opportunities out there. And I certainly think enter competitions and um, submit your work for literary magazines or short story competitions, whatever there is. But to do that, you have to have the confidence to think you are a writer. And I think that is the first hurdle, really. It's mm. true. The second thing you wanted to make sense of was um, how much the publishing journey from first draft to finished book is about collaboration. Yeah, so I think obviously writing is such a solitary career and what certainly feels like that at the beginning when you're working with your ideas and your first draft 
And I think a lot of people are very, and rightly so, very protective over their work and, and worried about sharing it. And I know I'm I'm definitely someone that doesn't want to share it until I feel that it's in a good state. Um, but I feel like some people have this perception that they can't share their work because people will steal it or they'll um, borrow it or they'll change it or they'll do something to it and and it, it will, won't be this pure thing anymore. And I would say that that is completely the wrong attitude because actually some of the best drafts I've done is from speaking to other people and bouncing around ideas or having my work workshopped or speaking to a mentor um, or an editor and you 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 say well this character they're not quite working or I'm not convinced by their reaction here and then you talk it through and that was the weirdest thing for me is that you end up talking about your characters if they're real people and you're thinking but I made them up how can this be how can we be talking about them as if they're living breathing humans mm-hmm. you know um but yeah every part of the process is about collaboration whether it's working with your agent, with your editor, even before you get to that point. I know people have used beta readers or friends that they know that write. And I mean, I think definitely share your work with people that you know that write, because I think if you just share it with someone that doesn't write, they're just going to tell you it's wonderful and that's mm-hmm. not very helpful. <laughs> so, um, but I think a lot of the process I've learned is that it's worth asking questions and I think I think a perception a lot of people have that maybe who want to be writers or are just thinking about getting into the industry, they worry that working on their book with an agent or editor will change it and they'll change it too much and they'll have to change things they don't want to change. And mm. um I know I had a I did an event recently and someone raised their hand and said, um, you know, was there anything that you had to change in your book that you didn't want to change? Um, and did you ever feel like forced to change things by your editor? And I, and I, first of all, I find that question quite funny because I'm the sort of person that usually thinks, okay, well, my agent and my editor know what they're talking about. And if they think it's wrong, it probably is wrong. Yeah. Um, most of the time I will agree with their changes. I remember the first um, editorial letter I had from my editor and they said, they, they wanted me to do a big structural change, but they, what they suggested, they didn't tell me I had to do it. At first of all, I was like, nope, not doing it. Too hard, not doing it. And then I knew deep down that it was the right thing to do. Mm. So I did do it in the end, even though it was a lot of work. But I always think there's no contract that says every time your editor makes a suggestion, you have to do what they say. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the time they say it for a good reason. And I think it's worth spending that time, even if your initial reaction is just, nope, not doing it, don't mm-hmm. agree. After time and you've, you've let it sink in, it usually has some some reason why they're saying this particular bit of advice or this mm-hmm. particular change. And I think it's important to remember what you said before, that your agent, your editor, they're all coming from so much experience and they're, giving you input that doesn't mean what you've done before was a failure of any kind Mm. but they are just elevating the story and I think sometimes when you get edits and feedback on something that you've creatively put your heart and soul into it can feel jarring at the start but actually they know why a structure might work in a certain way or why a character might not be necessary and I think sometimes it's also interesting to know how big the changes are to know that if that comes to you, then 
that is often what is occurring within these conversations anyway. The third thing, which I really like as a last uh, one to, to discuss, is letting go of things you have no control over. Yeah, and this is the hardest thing, I think, to learn. And every time I speak to other authors, this is the one thing that we always end up talking about and always end up going, oh, this is really bothering me, even though I can't do anything about it. Mm. <laughs> it is really, really hard when your book becomes an object and it becomes a thing for sale mm-hmm. because it no longer is your lovely little project that you've been working on for years and years because no one is going to know that mm. <laughs> no one's going to know that you cried over it or you know blood sweat and tears went into it um the author doesn't have any say over how many copies waterstones buys whether you get a nice spot on a table whether your mm. book is a front-facing book whether your book's going to have um a poster on the tube whether your um whether your book's going to have the nice sprayed edges or um, Mm. special edition or anything like that, you have absolutely no control over that at all. And you could write an amazing book. And I know people that have written amazing books that don't get that stuff Mm -hmm. and desperately would want that stuff. And I know I'm exactly the same. I'm like, I really want a special edition version of my book. Um, But it doesn't matter how much I want it. I have no control over it. And I can't even think if my book was better, Mm. I would get that. Because Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessarily an indication of quality. How many books authors buy, how many books sell, whether you're going to get a huge marketing campaign or not. Those things are financial decisions commercial decisions they don't necessarily have any bearing on it just basically means that your book is going to be maybe an easier sell maybe you have a very personal connection to your book and then that's going to be great for publicists because they can Mm. pitch you to all these different places um and i mean we often talk in in my kind of writing groups and my debut chats about you know like celebrity authors and and their the, the way they sell you know millions of copies and hundreds of thousands of copies but a lot of them are on tv every day mm-hmm. you can't compete with that and there is no there's no there's no point in beating yourself up over the fact that you haven't sold as many copies of as so and so um because at the end of the day you've done the only bit that you have any control of and that is write the book mm-hmm. you you didn't design the cover you didn't decide what the marketing spin was going to be mm. and you being a good writer or being a lovely person has no bearing on that at all mm. and I think it's really difficult to acknowledge that and be okay with it and let that go and think I I haven't sold I haven't been a bestseller I haven't sold as many copies as I wanted to and that actually has got nothing to do with me because mm-hmm. your book is you. Your book is your brand. You are your brand in that, that weird way. Mm. But actually, I think it's been shown that kind of book sales through social media, through kind of people chatting to you and stuff online is very, very small. 
Mm. And if you want to be on social media, great. If you don't, don't do it. Because actually you choosing not to be online will probably have no real bearing on your sales figures. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit here and there, but not huge. Um, but I think it's been the hardest thing to learn and to be okay with because I think there's that perception that um, maybe you're not doing it right or you're not being hugely successful because your book isn't in every waterstones in the country, your book isn't in the window. Um, But even if you wrote an amazing book, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be in the window. No. That's nothing to do with the quality of the book. No, not and at that's all. a very hard fact to sit like to sit with. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's the thing that a lot of people get upset about, myself included. But I think that's been the biggest thing to try and learn. And I think hmm. there I mean there are still things that I think oh oh I get upset about or I'll be disappointed by. But it's a lot of energy wasted on things that I can't change anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think it's better to just sit with the knowledge that you wrote a good book mm. and hearing from readers who really enjoyed it will be your reward, I suppose. Yeah. And also I think it's such a good point that these are things you can't control. Like we don't know what decisions are made for what reason in every stage of the process. You could say that for someone who feels um, this sense of rejection from not having had an agent yet or from not being published. At every single stage of the process, all of those elements could be things that you can't control. Yeah, I mean, it it feeds into my first point about being your best advocate and being, making the most of every opportunity by being a writer and saying to people, I am a writer because... For example, your book might not be a bestseller, but you could go into a local bookshop, speak to the bookseller, build up a genuine relationship with them, and they might like you so much that they put your book in the window. Okay, So that that is not going to happen in every bookshop in the country. But by being your best advocate, by, again, you don't have to go on social media, but if you choose to, making connections genuine connections and chatting to people joining kind of groups or online communities as much as you want to there will be opportunities out there and it's that is something you can control and yes you can't control whether you're going to get a poster in the tube but you might be able to get yourself an event or uh, an opportunity to speak at your local library and that there's there's bits that you can't control but then there's bits where by being your best advocate you can and enjoy it more because mm. if you are if you're going to a local library and 10 people turn up and eight of them buy a book that's eight people that wouldn't have bought a book and yes it's all numbers but by me meeting them and speaking to them that is the best bit of the job mm. Mm. better than anything else i think yeah. uh, so i would say those two go hand in hand really yeah I agree. And also it's not, I could imagine that even getting to be able to go to booksellers and speak to them, that's a part of the process you wouldn't have thought of at all getting to if you were, you know, essentially 
running away from Nell when she was driving <laughs> you as a rider, you weren't even thinking about this point of the process at that no. part. And so I think, yeah, to, to build and to kind of fight against that imposter syndrome and to really be present and say, you've wrote a book, you are a writer, you're writing another book, that those are the things that we can kind of focus on and um, they're really practical things that you can do to kind of offset, as you said, if it's not in the window, but maybe it's speaking to booksellers, maybe it's speaking to readers, which I could imagine would be such a warming and and um, something that really sinks in why you do what you do. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to say? I, I know we've spoken so much and you've given us so much, but is there anything else you'd like to say before we end? Yeah, I would just say that, I mean, I, a, I hope I haven't put anyone off <laughs> by my honesty. And I, I feel like if you want to write, whether it's you, you want to write to be published or you just want to write for fun, please just do it and please share your work. And if you feel like you're thinking it's impossible because there are so many barriers in the way and so much there's so much to get through to be published i would say if you want to do it just just keep writing and particularly if you are someone from a marginalized group if you're a minority if you're disabled we need you we need these voices you know um and the only way that the industry is going to change the only way um our books and our fiction is going to change is by people writing these stories and genuine stories, own voices stories. And I think if we want to change minds and attitudes, fiction is a great way to do it. So write your story, write what you want to write and just keep at it really. If you enjoyed this episode of Make It Make Sense with Sarika Thanendra and Tharaman, I would love if you would rate, review or subscribe to the podcast to help others find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Make It Make Sense.